Welcome back to Ganymede. Tonight we're in verse 19 of James chapter 1. We are moving on, uh, sort of, from tests and the process of testation, uh, except that tonight we get into part 1, which is not my intent. My intent was to do the whole verse of 19 tonight, but um, we got into things, and part 1 is tonight's lesson, and part 2 or 3 or 4 maybe in the next few lessons here. But um, as we get into our study tonight, remember that we are spiritual creatures uh, who are to be operating spiritually if we have been reborn uh, through acceptance of Christ as our Savior. So take 30 seconds or so and identify whether you're operating from the flesh or operating from the Spirit. And uh, in other words, if sin is in your life and there's known sin, uh, I would encourage you to confess that. And God says that when we do, He restores us to fellowship with Him. So take the 30 seconds or so and uh, confess any known sin if there is any, and uh, I'll pray and open up for us as we get going tonight. Father, as we once again get together tonight to gather and study and look at your word and the mysteries of what you are revealing to those in Christ during the church age, may we recognize our need for your spirit to teach us and to guide us, for us to rely on nothing except for that which you've revealed and rely upon you. May we put aside anything that may be distracting us, allowing you to guide us through the Holy Spirit and allowing him to do his work that you've relayed and given him to do in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so in James we're looking at this faith in action evidence of true spirituality. Now, when we say true spirituality, we're identifying that there is a truly spiritual mode of operation for a spiritual believer. Um, there are many things in this life right now, in this world, that are considered spiritual. Um, helping the poor is considered spiritual in some instances. Other things are considered spiritual. Um, but as James deals with this topic of true spirituality, he's identifying that, first off, to be truly spiritual, you have to be operating in faith, which means that you have to be operating in dependence and allowing that dependence upon God, upon His Word, to produce action within you. And that's the first evidence we're looking at. Self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, and patience, as well as submission to God through prayer, is what remains in the book of James as evidences that he gives for true spirituality. So as we look tonight again at verse 19, um, Think about the the statements that are being made by James that is identifying what we're going to talk about as being uh, a definition and an evidence of faith and action and thus true spirituality within the life of an individual. Our lives then should conform to that rather than that conforming to our lives. So in verse 19, James is identifying true spirituality by explaining what a true spiritual mindset looks like for a believer. That is, a believer who is, dependence, who is operating in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to guide him and lead him in his life, um, or her life, and in his day or her day, uh, has a specific mindset that James is saying should be there. James identifies three parts to this mindset, which is founded on peace with independence upon God to lead and direct. The peace there is based upon the relationship being in good standing, uh, rather than one that it was in contentious standing or one in which sin has permeated and thus no fellowship with God 
is had. So we have peace in relationship to God with salvation, in relationship to God with our walk, and then in relationship to God with our future. Uh, the peace is not just talking about not having contention, but also having uh, an ability to be at rest. And so it's not lack of contention that we're talking about. It's actually possessing rest and inner rest that is founded on something other than a physical thing. So uh, as we get into the study of verse 19, we'll look at these three parts over the next few weeks, uh, next few study sessions. Um, we're going to identify that these, these are, there are three parts here that make up this mindset, uh, but all of them stem from the dependence upon God in and out of every moment uh, and are evidenced by having peace in and out of every moment when true spirituality is operational. Therefore, the peace isn't there confess and get back in fellowship, allow God to lead once more. So in verse 19, James gives two commands to the diaspora. The first of the commands comes from the phrase, Iste mu agapetoi adelphoi. This is a command to apply what has been learned in verses 2 through 18 to the circumstances presented in trials and the process of testation. Now, the last two sessions we spent reviewing the different principles and various protocols that James taught through verses 2 through 18. Um, those are the things that he's referring to uh, as we get to the word-for-word -word study of uh, this phrase, este, este mu agapetoi adelphoi. Um, these are the things that he's referring to, and we're, the diaspora is being commanded to apply them to their life. The command begins with a present active imperative verb, este, which means to acquire knowledge. That's its simple, non-grammatical translation. Uh, if you were to look up just the root word in the dictionary, it would be to know. Um, problem is, this word comes from this word is now morphed into a new word. Um, it used to be from the word ida, and now it's moved into a more modern word oida. It used to be oida and ida coexisted, and now ida has been moved out of the language. So when you look this up in a Greek dictionary, you actually are looking up oida instead of ida, which is from where este comes from. What's that? I looked at every dictionary I had to establish the relationship between oida and ida, and I have three out of like 15 that actually mention ida, and they're the older ones. So as, as things get more modernized, we start losing some of these words and definitions, and it'll say, this is from a primitive root, which is lost, or something like that. Yeah, so, so basically, I mean, you're looking at like an etymological shift to some degree. Where a word means this, and now it becomes this. That's what I'm saying. Well, Here, we're just gonna get look at and, the old dictionary. And we've looked at this to some degree also with the grammar of the Koine Greek, changing from eight cases to five cases, combining things, trying to make it more simple for English and other studies. It's the same kind of concept. It's a dead language. It should stay the same. Yeah. But no, we should morph we it change? into all these different things. Yeah, exactly. I know, Rye. I'm with you. Let's cry about it. So, so all that to say is that makes this word a little bit difficult to come to a rendering of what it actually means. Um, but there is, in those three dictionaries that mention Ida, there is this understanding that iste comes from a process that allows you to acquire knowledge. So it's therefore translated as to acquire knowledge in its base form. Uh, as we look at it, it's a present active imperative verb. And in that sense, we're going to see how those change the acquisition of that knowledge. So simply put, to acquire knowledge is the definition of este. Um, and then in this sense of acquiring knowledge, 
if state identifies a process of acquiring that knowledge relative to a specific topic. So if you want to learn something, nowadays most people will say, well, Google it. That is the process that we're talking about, is going out, acquiring the knowledge so that you possess it and then can use it. Um, once you know something, you always know something. You may not remember something, but you will know it. It will be there somewhere in the recess of your brain. The more times you recall it, the more, the more traveled the neuro neurological path pathways are to it, and the easier it is for recall and lack of forgetfulness. So ISTE is not merely to know something, but rather that something has come to be known. And so it's not like I know Jamin in the sense that I've met him. It's the sense of I've come to know Jamin in this capacity. As we look at this, what James is referring to as that thing that's become known, it's going back to all those things that he's discussed in verses 2 through 18. As you've come to know these different things about trials and testation and how you're supposed to combat them, that's what he's talking about there. As a perfect tense verb, iste identifies a completed action in the past which produced results that continue through the present. In other words, the action is done. The acquisition of the knowledge is finished. They have it. The result of that action, that they possess the knowledge, continues on. Salvation is a perfect tense verb in Koine Greek as well. It identifies that the act of salvation or the possession of salvation is accomplished. The result of that, that you possess it, continues on. There's no uh, indication that it's ever that there's a stopping of the results. The results of the action continue after the action has been completed. That's the concept of the perfect tense. Um, so James here is identifying that the diaspora have acquired knowledge about a particular topic, and the result of their acquisition is that they possess that knowledge. The diaspora, according to James, have acquired knowledge about a particular topic, and the result of their acquisition is that they possess such knowledge. Iste is also an imperative mood verb, which identifies that there's a command being given by James to the diaspora. The imperative mood is what the Koine Greek uses to express a command. We've seen this before. Um, having a perfect tense verb, as well as an imperative mood verb, is actually very rare. There's only two concrete examples in Koine Greek, and that's Ephesians 5.5 and then James 1.19. Um, there's another one in Hebrews that in, indicates that it may be an imperative, but uh, it could be an indicative mood. Um, it's a very rare combination, and it's difficult to translate, partly because we don't know a lot about it. Um, and specifically, if you have a perfect action or perfect tense verb, it's an action that's occurred in the past that has results that continue. So how can it be commanded then? So we're going to look at kind of how that blends in together, because a command typically is something for the future. I'm commanding you to do this. We'll look at how that blends in as we get going tonight. Question? It's a perfect imperative. You know. This you know is actually all, it was what the New American Standard has translated from that one word. This you know. Sorry. I don't think we said that. But I, I still, yeah, it's kind of hard because it's how you know it. Yeah. How, yeah. Yep. All right. So by combining the imperative and the perfect together, James identifies a command to put into action that which was already been accomplished. Today we call this application. There's your simple harmony of it. Um, iste is also in the active voice, which identifies that the subject is supposed to perform the action themselves. So let's get back to that last paragraph and go to the one um, above it. Putting the perfect tense with the imperative mood means that the action that's been completed and has results that are continuing is now commanded to be used. Okay, so the action's done, but the results are now the focus. 
you've got this material, you've got this knowledge. The result that you've acquired, that you've gone out and got this knowledge, is that you possess it. Use that possession. It's an application sense. Um, again, it's very rare. The only other place is Ephesians 5.5, 5, and it talks about a very similar process in that verse. Um, so you, you take that concept of a completed action in the past of acquiring knowledge, thus to possess knowledge, on this topic of trials and testation, and then you say the imperative there is that you are supposed to use that knowledge. You know it, so know it, in other words. Iste also is in the active voice. So the subject then, according to Koine Greek, is supposed to perform the action. Now the action is not the completed action in the past. The action is to retain the knowledge of what they learned, to use it. So the, the active voice relates more to the imperative mood or the command to, to know what you know, rather than the command to go back, because it's not a command, but rather than applying to going and getting the knowledge. It's not a command to go acquire knowledge, it's a command to use what you have and to perform, perform the action to use what knowledge you've acquired. It's kind of a tricky construct. It took five hours today, just for that one word. Probably because I was second-guessing myself. But anyway, that's what it is. That's the trickiness of it. Um, this is why my grandfather calls James by the first name Jesse. So he's Jesse James, because he causes trouble and he's a rebel. Um, there's, there's only one other place in the scripture that this is used in this way, and it's along the similar lines. So again, we've got the completed action in the past of acquiring knowledge, the learning process. Once that process is finished, the acquisition of that knowledge continues on. They possess that knowledge. So the command then is to use what you've learned and to perform the action to do so. So it's upon the diaspora's shoulders, their responsibility and their relationship and dependence upon God to re remember what, they're, what they've learned and use it. And I say remember, I don't mean maintain. I mean to have it at the forefront of your mind, your operational forefront. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Or as you go through college and you get your degree and you come out to the world and you work in your field. You're using what you learned. Oh. Same, same kind of concept, but yeah. So, istemu agapetoi adelphoi is what the New American Standard Translation translates as this you know, my beloved brethren. Now, the literal translation, and when I say literal, I should say expanded translation, uh, when we put the grammar in there, of iste is having acquired knowledge on a topic in a completed action in the past with results, or with the result being that you are in possession of knowledge of that topic, perform the action to know that knowledge. In other words, you know it, so use it. If you know it, know it. Don't ignore it. Use it. It's a lot of stuff for one little word. What is it that the diaspora have come to know? All the things that James has taught them concerning trials and the process of testation in verses 2 through 18. Those principles that we worked through the last two sessions, um, we had a number of them. And we had a whole list of subpoints and points and pieces to them. Um, that whole list that we've exposed and probably a lot more that we've probably missed uh, are what James taught the diaspora concerning their the mechanics for going through trials and the protocols for the process of testation, how it works, how they should get around it, what they can remember to avoid it, um, and what they can do not to just avoid it, but to overcome it. James is telling the diaspora then to use what they've learned. 
You've learned it, so use it. But he goes on to give another command as well, which governs the diaspora's use of what they have learned. What I mean by that is that we've got now an umbrella command that says you're supposed to use what you've learned, but you're supposed to use it in this way. So now we've got a bubble around the command uh, with another command. <clears throat> James establishes his second command as, as being logically connected to the first. In other words, James says that there's a relationship which exists between using what you know and this second command. Um, it may, I'll just keep going. This conjunct, the conjunction of soft contrast, day, is used to express a logical connection between two thoughts or two constructs. It identifies that they're related but are not themselves the same things. So and might be better than but there. Day is often translated as and, except that being a literal language, day is but, chi is and, you go with that. Um, because there's an aspect of the relationship and this, the distinctions between them, so that while they may be related, they're different. So it's with and you get syntactically an equivalence of this and this, and, it, and you can. It's a subordinate or coordinate or um, there's one more. Either way, with the coordinate conjunction of an and, you get an e equivalence where this and this and both this equal the same thing. They have the same weight in the sentence. Um, so with day, you're getting. You're not focusing on their, their equality in their relationship. You're focusing, focusing on the fact that they're different, but yet they're related. So they work together in some way. Good. So it would all three be more like saying something also something else. So they're just mixing to, them without saying yeah, that they're the same. To some degree. Whereas mm -hmm. I think what you just thought was more of a hang up. Yeah. The, yeah, and, and actually in this usage, there is a hang up to some degree but it's not to a large depth like we often get in English. And we'll explain a little bit of that as we continue on here. But what we need to know about day is that one, it's a it's conjunction, so it's connecting two things together, and it's uh, logical in its connection. So there's a logical relationship between the two things it's connecting, but they're different. When contrast is conveyed in Koine Greek, the predominant conjunctions used to establish depth of differences between two or more items are day and Allah. Day is used for soft contrast. That is in the sense that white and off-white are different, but not extremely so. Excuse me. There we go. So day is used for soft contrast. White, not white, but off-white. They're both white, but they're different. So there's not an extreme contrast there. When extreme contrast is being expressed, Koine Greek uses the conjunction Allah to identify such as the case. Allah expresses an extreme contrast such as the contrast between black and white. Opposite ends of the spectrum. They're not the same color. They're not the same thing. They're complete opposites. Usually when Allah is used to express that um, contrast, it's placing an emphasis on the extremeness between the two and the two qualities. So in that James uses day, there's a soft contrast being expressed between the two commands. This soft contrast emphasizes the existence of a relationship between the two commands James is giving, but identifies also that they are not the same things. They differ one from the other in spite of the relationship. So they're logically connected. There's a reason why he's giving it. There's a reason for why the first command fits underneath the umbrella of the second one. In using day, James establishes a logical relationship that connects his command to use what has been learned with his second command. This logical relationship expressed by James in his second command to the diaspora, which we are going to get into now. 
This second command identifies how the diaspora is able to carry out the first command. Okay, so now in verses 2 through 18, we've got the knowledge of what to do. In verse 19, we get that first command that, hey, you've learned this, so use it. All right? And now we're getting this is how you're supposed to use it. Don't just use it. You've got to use it under this umbrella. So use it, but use it this way. And there's that little hang-up we were talking about. It's not a huge one, but it's there. <clears throat> so in essence, James is saying you have, you have to use what you learn, but if you're going to do that, then you have to do this. So in order to use what you've learned, you've got to do it in this way. And again, this is part of him establishing what true spirituality actually looks like and defining that to us and that evidence of faith in action and that when we depend upon what God says and who he is, it produces action within us. That's this part of the process. If you're going to do this, you've got to do it in this way. And that means you've got to depend upon God and his word in this. If you want to do it another way, go for it, but it's not going to produce the same results. And that's not what true spirituality is. Esto pos anthropos establishes James's second command. Esto is the third person singular imperative that grammatically identifies the second command James is giving. James is given. I don't know how that happened. So esto is a third person singular, which is a he, she, or it concept, um, and it's an imperative mood, and so grammatically identifies the second command that James is giving um, as being he, she, or it is to perform the continuous action to exist in a specific state of being. Esto is from aimi, which means to exist. It's our word for are or is or was or were, depending on your, your tense and your usage there. Um, but in Koine Greek, it has this nuance more so than just that simple word is to us. When we say is, we're saying basically it exists in this way. This is what it is. Uh, but in Koine Greek, aimi, which is from which is where esto is from, uh, it's this concept that you perform the action to exist in a specific state of being. So we're getting that specific state of being a little bit later in the command. Uh, in fact, those are the, the state of being that the believer is commanded to exist in. Uh, specifically, are those three parts to the command and that we'll get into over the course of the next few sessions. So context here dictates whether the third person reference is personal or relative or masculine or feminine. Um, remember we said third person is either he, she, or it. And the singular there um, being that it's one uh, rather than they, them, or those. So we've got a reference to one thing, a he, she, or it, and the reference here comes, the reference here which comes from understanding pos anthropos, the rest of this transition into the command, is literally that every man is to esto. So in other words, every man is to perform the action to exist in a, state of, in a specific state of being. And again, that state of being is prescribed in the next three parts to this command. James is contextually referring to every individual, which makes up the diaspora. This includes women as well, uh, especially in Koine Greek, and this happened a lot in older languages. Um, the masculine gender encompassed all genders underneath it. Um, so with the masculine gender being employed here, it's not just saying every male, it's saying every man, and that is implying every female, every man, every mankind um, being, every human anthropoi, anthropod. Anthropoi was Greek, anthropod was English. So this includes women as well. While specifically writing to the diaspora, James is identifying truth. Another aspect of true spirituality to all church age believers. It's a good thing we do this before we put this up on the internet. While specifically writing to the diaspora, James is identifying another aspect of true spirituality to all church age believers. 
Okay, so we've got the diaspora who he's talking to, who are church age believers themselves. We also are church age believers, so this applies to us. Partly because it's after that Acts 2, partly because God has given us specific commands in our dispensation, our stewardship to him, through that passage up to uh, Revelation passages. So with, with that understood, when we say he's talking to, writing to the diaspora, we're, we're keeping it in the, the local context, but realistically we are a part, not of the diaspora, but of the body of Christ, to which the diaspora are a part of as well. So he's writing to the body of Christ, transitively. Follow that? So while specifically writing to the diaspora, James identifies another aspect of true spirituality to all church-age believers. Um, we're getting into the command part of this, and in the first part of this we'll, we'll just we'll touch on for the most part. Um, we'll get into it a little more in-depth next week, but the actual protocol of believer's operation is in the first part of this command. We are to operate in the first part of this command at all times. Um, now when you zoom in contextually, there's a different focus of it, um, but both it's got a dual focus uh, or dual teaching for believers uh, as we get going. Okay, so James is commanding every believer to perform the continuous action to exist in a specific state of being. That state of being then is given by James as a three-step response of the believer to whichever circumstance they encounter, including the process of testation. Okay, so we've got three steps to responding to the process of testation and to circumstances we encounter, whether we find them trying or difficult or not. <clears throat> Step one, James gives in order for the believer to properly carry out the command to use what they have learned is identified through the phrase takus, ice, ta, akusai. This is an action which is the result of a truly spiritual mindset. Now remember I just went on about how we're about to get to the part where all believers are commanded to operate in this way. Um, not just when they're faced with circumstances, but this is our base mode of operation, is that dependence upon God. This is a mindset that we have. Um, and Akuse is going to give us a little more in, insight into that. Uh, but this isn't just an action that's accomplished of being quick to hear. Uh, it's actually a mindset. And we'll see that as we continue studying this phrase. Takus is an adjective which means immediately, in the sense of without delay. However, it gives a lot more than what meets the eye with immediately. Um, what, it, what identifies is that there is some sort of stimulant or some sort of action, uh, not necessarily a catalyst, but something that triggers a response. Um, so it may not be the cause of the response, but it, it's something that needs a response given to it. So as, as you walk through your day, and let's just go back for the candy bar thing, you're tested to take or steal a candy bar that you want and don't want to pay for, your response then, that event should trigger a response when you recognize that you're in that kind of a process. That should trigger a response. And this is what Takus is saying, is that that trigger should produce an immediate response in the believer. So this happens, immediately this happens. Now it's not a reflexive thing, but it's a, it's a volitional response to a specific stimulant. The emphasis of Takus is on a minimal delay between the trigger and the response. So it's, it's that immediacy that we're talking about. It's not, okay, there's the trigger, and here's the response. The, it's a trigger response right away, immediate concept. Um, and so that's why we put immediately in there, which I know is an adverb in English. 
but partly is because part of that part of the reason I put that in there as an adverb is because we're actually describing this phrase "aista akusai." So we're dealing with a stimulant which triggers an immediate response, and the the delay between the response and the trigger should be minimal, almost nothing. The imagery of aista akusai is very vivid in the original language, largely due to the prepositional connotations, meaning that the prepositions deal with how things relate to other things in proximity, um, both in physical location and in abstract or metaphorical location. Uh, they, they place things around other things, basically. Um, so the connotations of a preposition that they place things on other things, also with the concept that an infinitive here is used, um, gives us this very vivid concept that James is saying into the hearing. Okay, so go back to Takus and you've got immediate response into the hearing. It's kind of like saying to the bat cave, if you will. It's that we're going into it. Now ice, ta'akuse, literally reads into the hearing um, and it comes, this is part of the connotation with the preposition ice specifically, denotes motion from one place, of one object to one, from one place to another. So um, in this case, it's denoting motion of the believer into this realm of hearing, okay, or this mindset of hearing. This motion is described by Takus, therefore the movement of the believer into hearing is to be immediate, having been triggered by an external stimulant or event. So the concept is that when a trial comes up, the instant that trial is recognized, it triggers an immediate response of the believer to go into a mode of hearing. Again, this is teaching the believer how, in the diaspora, how to use what they've learned. So the command is to use it, and if you're going to use it, you have to use it in this way. You have to go into this first step. You have to do a quick, immediate response for hearing. They understand that a circumstance, contextually, a trial, or the process of testation is encountered, which triggers the believer into immediate action. That action is that the believer immediately goes into hearing. Ta'akusai is literally the hearing, and by placing the definite article with akusai, James establishes a specificity about akusai. It's specifically the hearing. Now this word is used actively in the Greek New Testament, akusai. It's actually akuo in the root form. Um, and it generically references the believer's relationship with God and their ability to hear and obey what God says for him in, their, in every moment of, their, of every second of their life. Now, now God may not say something every second of their life, but it's the concept that the believer's mind is open and waiting and ready for, the, for God and in proper relationship, no sin pandering it, is ready and waiting for him to speak and then them affirmatively, affirmatively respond. Kusai comes from akua, which means to listen, and it means to listen in the sense of hearing a noise or a command and responding positively towards it. My mother, oftentimes as a child, asked me, are you listening to me? And it wasn't, are you paying attention to the words that I'm saying? No, it was, hey, I've given you a command to do, why aren't you doing it? Have you, been, have you listened to me? Are you listening to me? This usually was a result of me not taking out the trash after being asked like five times to make a 20-second walk from the kitchen to the trash can, and I, for some reason, just didn't feel like I wanted to do it. Um, and while I wasn't actively rebelling, I was disobeying her, and that's a passive rebellion. Re rebellion? It's a passive rebellion. So, yeah, I think that's what it was, rebellious and rebellion mixed together, rebellions. I like it. So <clears throat> by not doing it, she oftentimes would say, hey, are you listening to me? You better listen to me. And it wasn't that she wanted me to hear what she was saying. She wanted me to do what she was saying. 
So it's a combination of hearing and doing. That's what a kul represents, is that there's some noise, some command, some statement, and then some positive or affirmative response, specifically positive or affirmative. A positive or affirmative response is one which responds to what is heard or commanded in a way that affirms the value, nature, or quality of the commander, its commander. Oftentimes, both the command and the commander. In other words, go take out the trash recognizes that there's value to take out the trash because the trash can is full. We need the trash can out from the kitchen, the trash out from the kitchen to the, to the big trash can so that the kitchen doesn't smell, so we have more room for it. There's value to it. By responding positively to that, I would go get the trash can, take it out to the backyard. I oftentimes respond negatively to that, which is the converse, not giving it the proper value that it has. So positive or affirmative, if you hear those phrases from me, um, talking about placing the proper value or, or giving the proper esteem to a command or to a, a statement. It may not be a command. Any questions on positive or affirmative? Okay. Uh, it, it's basically self-explanatory. It affirms the value, nature, quality. Um, or it's a positive volitional choice, one which has positive consequences. So, for example, a positive response to the cross is one which affirms God's plan of salvation as possessing value through an individual's volitional dependence. One saying, that's it, I agree, I'm going for that one. It affirms it, gives it value. So James is commanding the believer, he's commanding that the believer perform the action to exist in the state of responding to trials and the process of testation by immediately moving into a mindset of listening and responding positively to what is heard. This is the first step that James gives in order for the believer to be able to implement that which has been already learned from verses 2 through 18 about trials and the process of testation. And we'll look at this Akuo concept a lot more in the next session. Uh, it was at the point that if we got into it tonight, we'd be into it too far. So we're here. We're where we're at. We're going to look at the next three parts to this command. Um, but as we look at this word Akuo, um, that we're going to right now pull it out of the context that it's in and use it under the New Testament's overarching context that as believers, our job is to be at that point where we are hearing God and volitionally, positively affirming his, his statements to us. If he says, this is a part of your life, needs to not be a part of your life, okay, I agree with that, let's go. Uh, if he says, this is what I want you to do, go minister to this person, go minister in this way, I need you to go read this verse or whatever. It's okay, let's go. It's an instant hearing the command and obeying it or positively responding to it. So that's what, where we're at this week, uh, is looking at that until we get back to our next session. And we'll put it back into its context and look at specifically how that works in relationship to trials and testation. So for now, keep in mind your job to Akuo during this week. Any questions? I do. Okay. Can you go back? How far? One slide. One slide.